You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Genesis 34. Uh, Preaching through a book like Genesis means you preach what's next. And sometimes you get a text with difficult subject matter. And Genesis 34 is one of those. So I'm just going to get it out there and then we're going to read it here in a minute. But this chapter includes the the rape of Jacob's teenage daughter Dinah. As well as her brothers responding by convincing their enemies to be circumcised. And then attacking them and killing them while they were recovering. So are you intrigued yet? Um, This is one of those chapters you wouldn't make up if you could, which gives us confidence that this is God's book. He didn't didn't keep anything out of it. And uh, we see the total depravity of mankind in this passage here. And uh, there's some lessons that we can learn. But what I really want you to consider as we stand, let's stand to read this. Um, what I want you to consider is what man is capable of when God is left out of life. What man is capable of when God is left out of the picture. We're going to read this, and as we read chapter 34, that I want you to count, and I'm gonna, it's going to be a quiz, okay? So at the end of, this, of, the, of the reading, then I want you to tell me how many times that you see the word God or Lord. Okay, so just anything to do with God, anything to do with the Lord. Genesis 34, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. So he has a quick change of heart. And Shechem spake unto his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field. And Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when, when they heard it. And the men were grieved, and they were very wroth, because he had wrought folly in Israel by in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter, I pray you give her him to wife and make ye marriages with us and give your daughters unto us and take our daughters unto you. And just as a reminder, God had told his people to remain separated from the people of the land. And so for them to join forces and and create what you might call a a super tribe, um, that's not God's plan for his people. Uh, He has called them to be separated and and so this whole thing is, is a bad idea, but you don't really get that from Jacob's response because he doesn't have much to say. 
He just listens. It says in verse 10, And ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife, I'll pay whatever, he says. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father deceitfully, and said, Because he had defiled Dinah, their sister, and they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if ye will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter, and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son... I'm not sure how that, that, those words pleased Hamor. Uh, you and all, your, all the men in your city, you need to be circumcised. And it says, but they're so intent on this happening that they're willing to go through with this. Um, verse 15, but it, uh, verse 14. And they said unto them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us, but in this will we consent unto you, if you will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor, and Shechem, Hamor's son. And the, the young man, def, man deferred, uh, this Shechem, deferred not to do the thing. In other words, he didn't put it off. He was like, I'm doing this right away. Uh, he deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter. And he was more honorable than all the house of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came into the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city, saying, These men are peaceable. We can trust them. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade therein. For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives, and let us give them our daughters. This is going to work. Only herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us to be one people. Okay, we have one little, one little thing. Okay, we got one small detail that we haven't told you yet. Here it is. If every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised, shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Okay, it's worth it. Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamor and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city. And every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. It came to pass on the third day when they were sore... That two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren. Okay, Dinah's Leah's son, a daughter. Simeon and Levi are Leah's sons. So this is their full sister. They're not half, there's not a half relationship here. And so they have extra incentive. They took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword. 
and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me to make me distinct among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what about Dinah, Jacob? What's your concern here? Now, I'm not saying Simeon and Levi did right. They didn't. But Jacob's not really responding very well either. Verse 31, and they said, should, should he deal with our sister as, as with an harlot? And there's, there's so much wrong here. I mean, and in case you're wondering, uh, let's turn over to Genesis 49. In case you're wondering how to respond to this. It, what's God's view of Simeon and Levi and what they did? Verse Genesis 49, we heard this at the men's advance over the weekend, the guys that went. Verse 5. So Genesis 49, verse 5. Simeon, this is Jacob before he dies. He's, he's uh, kind of granting them the last blessing. It says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into, the, into their secret, under their assembly, mine honor. Be not thou united, for in their anger... They slew a man. And in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger for it was fierce. And their wrath for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So in case you're wondering, if, if you're one of those, it's like, yes, Simeon and Levi, they took care of business. It was not anger with righteousness. It was not anger that pleased God on any level and, and as we look at this passage, I, so as we read this, I don't know if you remember the assignment. Anybody notice how many times God was mentioned? How many? How many times was the Lord mentioned? Zero. Now look at the last verse of chapter 33. And he erected there an altar... So Genesis 33, this is right before the story. He erected there, Jacob did an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means um, mighty is the God of Israel. Look at Genesis 35, verse 1, the first verse of the next chapter, and God. So Genesis 33 ends with an altar to God. Genesis 35 begins with God working. But Genesis 34, he's nowhere to be found. Nowhere, nowhere. Nobody prays to him. Nobody asks him what to do next. And in this story, everybody's wrong. Nobody's right. In the title this morning, you know, I, I prayed about how to approach this. And the best way that I think that we could, the best lesson we could learn is this, the wrong way to handle wrong. How not to handle wrong. And if I had a subtitle, it would be this, walking the line between fear and fury. Because that's what's happening here. You've got people on both sides of the extreme and none of them are right. And it's a hard text, but there's some lessons to learn. Let's pray and, and be seated. Father, I pray for your help. 
Pray that you'd help me to be wise in how I deal with these things. Pray that you'd help my voice. Pray that you'd help our hearts to be softened. And I know some of the subject material is sensitive, and yet you preserved it for us. And so there's something for us to learn. I pray that you'd help us to have open ears and not be distracted by that which would be a little sensitive, Lord, and, and help us to be appropriate. But God, I pray that you'd be glorified. Speak to our hearts through your word. Bless the reading of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's so many things are wrong with this picture. When I was a, a kid, um, my, my parents didn't allow me to watch it much, but I would occasionally watch Sesame Street. And uh, there was a video segment on Sesame Street called um, One of These Kids is Doing His Own Thing. My wife watched it too, apparently. One of these kids is doing his own thing. And there'd be like four squares on the screen and and on the three of those squares, there'd be three kids and they're just sitting there looking around like normal. And one girl in the corner is hanging upside down and her braids are hanging. She's all the way upside down. And as a kid, you know, you thought you were a pretty good problem solver because it's like one of these kids is doing his own thing. And then I'd run up to the TV and I'd point to the one that's upside down like I just solved a major crime, you know, and and point to it, and they would say, this is the one that's doing his own thing. Well, in our story, everybody's doing his own thing. I mean, if this was a visual, everybody would be upside down in the picture. And no, nobody has it right. Um, everybody has it wrong. Nobody's seeking to do it right. They're just kind of responding to the situation responding to the stimulus, and you have lots of wrong things. You've got wrong associations. I mean, in, in, very, in verse 1, you've got, in, in chapter 34, verse 1, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And so here's Dinah, the daughter of Leah and Jacob, and from what we understand, this is, this is Jacob's only daughter, and, and you would think that he would, be, he would be concerned about his only daughter, but she's out, she's making associations with the people of the land. Which God says you've got to be careful of those that don't serve your God. You've got to be careful of those that don't have your values. Um, but the, the problem really isn't just Dinah's. The problem is also Jacob's. Because we find out the chapter before Jacob bought a piece of land from Hamor. He, he was living in Shechem. He had made associations with Shechem. He, was, he had the wrong associations. He was hoping to continue a business relationship with the people of Shechem. We find that out later. He's very silent when they're talking about forming a, a pact and, and coming together in one large tribe. So Dinah is seeking associations with them. But I really believe it goes back to Jacob's decision to settle in the land of Shechem when God said go to Bethel. Uh, you, he could have at least gone to, uh, to to Hebron with his, his father, but he's in a place where God never told him to settle. And now his, his children, Dinah specifically, is looking to make associations where he has settled. And, and there's a lot of good lessons for parenting and, and here. Uh, Dinah was likely a teenager at this point, and she's looking for friends. And when your only options are people who don't share your values and they don't serve your God, you're in for trouble. My question is, where is Jacob? 
I mean, Jacob should have known where his daughter was. And part of the issue is that, that this is Leah's daughter and Jacob tended to play favorites. And Jacob's favorite wife was Rachel. And so his favorite children would be, have been Joseph and, and, and later Benjamin. Um, Leah had children with him as well, but th they weren't his favorite. I mean, this is a family trend, by the way. And so still, though, this is his daughter. And you'd think he'd be concerned about her well-being more than he's concerned about a business relationship with Shechem. He should have had a close enough relationship with his daughter to know where she was trending. Uh, but, but like, you know, he, he should have been able to, to see the signs. But like Jacob, there are too many dads prioritizing things like business endeavors over the protection of their children's hearts. Jacob's associations influence Dinah's associations. And parents, what we do in moderation, our children will do in excess. Our children will take what we do and they'll go steps beyond it. And listen, they're going to have plenty of influences that pull them away from God. But we as parents, it's our responsibility to prioritize uh, influences that counter the worldly influences in their lives. They have hours on social media. They all, they'll have hours with their friends at school. They'll have hours playing video games with other people online and, and hours uh, on TV and, and all of those things. So I scratch my head when parents don't prioritize a few hours a week in God's house with God's people. Uh, we've, uh, what are our priorities? Uh, they're being flipped and they need something to counter that. The greatest influences on our children's lives should be God's word, their parents... And their church. Dinah ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. And it led to the wrong actions. Verse 2. Um, there's no way to sugarcoat this. Shechem, the son of Hamor, uh, the prince of the country. It says he saw her, he took her, he lay with her, and he defiled her. It's like a slap in the face. It's so direct and so, uh, just, just so laid out there, here it is. Shechem took advantage of Dinah. It was rape, and there's no way to soften this. Should Dinah have been where she was? No. Should she have been supervised by her dad? Yes. Did she have the wrong associations? Yes. So is she responsible for Shechem's actions? No. And I'll say that boldly today. See, the text is clear. This was impulse on his part. He saw her. He took her. He lay with her. He defiled her. This was violent. It was one-sided. Now, could she have avoided being there? Yes. But Shechem is responsible for his actions, and they were wrong. His response is interesting. After this happens, he, he, it seems like he falls in love with her. He, his soul cleaves unto her and he loves this damsel. He speaks kindly unto her. And, and I'm thankful maybe that he was trying to make things right. Um, I believe he genuinely feels strongly for her. But at this point, it's a little bit too late. And here's why. Because God has an order for relationships. And Genesis chapter 2 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. You leave your father and mother, and then you cleave to your wife and become one flesh. There's an order of things in God's mind, and the order is that you get married, 
And then you have a physical relationship. And I, I know that's not popular in our culture. And our, our, our culture's tried to redefine things. And, and, you know, marriage, though, according to the Bible, it's marriage, then bed. And I know the world says, well, you know, you've got to try these things out. You've got to do a test run and make sure for a while that it's the right thing. But that's a cultural mindset. And the biblical order of things is marriage first. And when we step outside of that order, there are things to be dealt with. And listen, I'm thankful God provides grace. I'm thankful for that. And there are times when, when failure comes and sin comes and we, mistakes are made and, and God forgives. And I'm thankful for that. But it also complicates the process. This act caused Shechem to have wrong expectations. So you've got wrong associations. You've got wrong choices. You've got wrong expectations. Shechem thought that he could just go tell his dad, hey, listen, dad, I really like this girl. Get her, to, get her for me. To have, I want her to be my wife. I mean, that's a strange expectation. I mean, he's a prince. Maybe he's entitled. Seems like it. He thinks that his dad is just going to go and get this young woman to be his wife. And I know that the culture was different back then. Um, they felt they had a good cause, though, or a good case. Shechem had strong feelings for her. Um, he's apparently, they feel like he's a pretty good young man. Later on, we find out that he was, the, he, uh, uh, in terms of character, he's about the best in the whole household. So what does that say about the rest of them? This young man thinks, okay, Dad, this is who I want. You go get her for me, and we'll pay whatever it takes. But listen, just because you feel like your intentions are good, and just because you may have a change of heart, our feelings don't undo the consequences that we have to face when we make bad choices. God is merciful, but he's also just. And to assume that a choice that injures somebody will just be overlooked because you count yourself a nice person is wrong. There are consequences to actions. There, so you've got wrong associations. And really in wrong associations, you've also got wrong parenting because Jacob didn't take the steps he needed. Then you've got, these, uh, you've got wrong choices. Then you have wrong uh, actions and you've got wrong expectations. You could just call the whole thing, it's just the wrong chapter. Everybody's doing their own thing. But the wrong that I want to focus on this morning is the wrong response. Because there are wrong responses here that I think is probably the best thing for us to learn through this. Jacob's response is wrong. Verse 5, it says, Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. And he went right up to Hamor and Shechem's door and knocked on it and punched him in the nose. It doesn't say that. It says that Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughters. And that's about it. See, Jacob heard what happened and done nothing. And listen, I'm the father of four girls. And I was sitting down here um, this morning during the special. Maybe that's part of the reason I'm crying. I was a, I've got one playing the piano and I've got one singing the song. And I'm just crying like a baby. Because I love them. And they mean a lot to me. And I can't imagine as a dad hearing news like this and just thinking, okay. It's going to hold my peace here. I mean, I can't imagine. This is, in my opinion, you know, just as a dad, I'm thinking shame on Jacob. Because Jacob is obviously driven by something bigger than love for his daughter. And I would submit to you that Jacob is operating out of fear. 
He holds his peace with Hamor. And, and when his sons get there, then he lets them lead these negotiations. And Hamor comes up with this plan. He's like, I'm going to pay you big, big time money, major dowry for Dinah. And Jacob says nothing. In verse 9, Hamor basically says, we're going to marry each other. You can have our daughters. And we, you know, we'll have your daughters. We'll make a new strong tribe. Jacob is silent. In verse, verse 10, I'm just giving you a summary. We've already read it. Uh, he says, you've already benefited from our relationships financially. There's plenty more where that came from. And Jacob is silent. Shechem is, gets in on the action in verses 11 and 12. He says, I'll give you whatever you want for Dinah. Listen, I'll pay you whatever you want for your daughter. Think about what's being said. I will pay you for your daughter. Silence. We find out later that Jacob's being driven not by anything else but fear. He's afraid for the things he's going to lose. And his silence seems to indicate he's okay with this. By the end of the chapter, when his sons have done all their damage, in verse 30, he gives this glimpse into this thinking. Look at verse 30. The end of the chapter, chapter 34, verse 30. After his sons do what they do, and he says, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've troubled me. You've troubled me to make, think about, okay, so we, we, we did a quiz earlier. How many times you see God? How many times you see the Lord? How many times, times you see me and I in verse 30, okay? You've troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I, being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. So where's Jacob's focus in chapter 34? He's not looking up to God. He's looking at himself. And he's afraid that what's happened with Dinah is going to put at risk his reputation in the community. That's going to put at risk his business dealings in the community. It's going to put at risk his protection. His own life is at, is at, is at stake. He's afraid for his safety. There's one side of the wrong response here, and it's fear. He's afraid. And when fear is our response, things don't get dealt with. Did you know that as a Christian, it's okay to be angry about sin? Be ye angry and sin not, the Bible says. So it's okay to be angry about matters of unrighteousness. And listen, the least that Jacob could have done was be angry about the sin that took place and affected his daughter. You just wish he would rise up. You'd wish he'd just stand up and protect his daughter and protect his family and have some love for his daughter. But he's full of fear. He's afraid. Say, what a wrong response. And those of us in here who like to take action, we're like, man, what a wimp. But Jacob's response wasn't the only wrong response in the chapter. Because his sons come along, they hear about it. It's interesting, Jacob hears about it and he sits at home. His sons hear about it, the Bible says they left the cattle in the field and they directly come home. Look at verse 7. The sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. So, you know, in some ways it starts out, I'm thinking, well, I'm thankful that at least they were fired up about this. I'm thankful that at least that they were passionate about their sister, but their grief turns to anger and it's not righteous anger. 
It's not just anger, it's sin. See, after hearing Hamor and Shechem's offer to form a new super tribe, is what I'm calling it, they respond with deception. In verse 13, it says, um, and they, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor's father, his father deceitfully. So they're, not, they're, they're no longer just angry at, at what happened. Now they've got a plan. They're working an angle. And so they say that we already read this, but basically, I'll summarize it. Uh, we can't do this thing. We can't give our sister to somebody that's uncircumcised. If you'll get circumcised, if you'll do that one thing, then you can have our sister. Circumcision was a sacred act for God's people. The Jewish people, it was a this permanent uh, reminder that they belonged to God. It was a sign of the covenant with God. Only those who truly belong to Jehovah should be circumcised. But Levi and Simeon and the brothers, they treat it like a weapon for the sake of revenge. It was never God's intentions for a circumcision, the sign of the covenant, um, to be used as a means of revenge. As a way to gain the upper hand. No, you, you only took this as a sign. If you were saying, I am God's and he is mine. And I follow him and I am for him and I will obey him. No, Jacob's sons are so full of wrath that nothing is sacred. Nothing is off limits. And Shechem and Hamor, um, they, it seems like they have more honor in this whole thing than Jacob and his sons. They go home and the young man deferred not to wait. He said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow through. This is the young lady that I want to be my wife. They go home and they, they tell the guys, they say, we can trust these guys. All they're asking is this one thing and it doesn't sound like a small thing to me. But they were willing to do it. They were willing to take these steps. Every male was circumcised. Look at verse 25. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. They slew Hamar and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. They kill every male in the city, not just Shechem and Hamor. They spoil the city and they take this, the children and the wives captive. This is complete and utter devastation. This is not retribution. It's annihilation. It's all because of Dinah. So I just want to then take a step back, okay? So that's the background. If Jacob's response was fear, Levi and Simeon responded with fury. So you've got these two things. You've got fear on one side. You've got fury on the other. And both fear and fury limit God's ability to make things right. See, Jacob was afraid. He should have done more. He, was, he had fear. But his sons were furious and they went too far. Fury. Both responses were extreme. Neither response was balanced. It was literally all or nothing. Neither response dealt with the wrong. Jacob was going to let it slide. His sons destroyed the lives of people who had done nothing wrong. And I would submit to you that the greatest wrong here is that both responses ignored God's ability to make the wrong right. Both responses ignored God's ability to make this wrong right. If you operate out of fear, you've forgotten that God is in control. He can make things right and I need to trust him. 
But if you operate out of fury, you've forgotten that God is in control and he doesn't need me to be judge and jury and executioner. Vengeance is God's responsibility. Romans 12, 19, dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Ezekiel wrote, I will, uh, Ezekiel 25 wrote the words of the Lord. He said, I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall lay my vengeance upon them. You know, it is God's rightful responsibility as creator to judge when necessary. And neither fear or fury acknowledge that. Jacob didn't concern himself with God's holy desire for, for justice. He removed it from God's hands by leaving the Lord out of the process. And Levi and Simeon were more concerned with revenge than justice. They also left the Lord out of the process by taking matters into their own hands. Fear and fury are wrong responses to wrong being done. Fear fails to address the issue, it's an undercorrection. But fury tends to address more than the issue, and it's an overcorrection. You say, well, okay, well, what does this have to do with us? Well, as believers, we must constantly strive to find the balance. When wrong is done between our fear and our fury. Here's why. Because wrong will always be done. As long as we live on this sinful planet earth. And as long as we live around sinners. And I'll say it this way. As long as we are sinners. Wrong is a part of life. And with wrong being a part of life, we must learn how to deal with wrong biblically. And I don't just mean in the big things, okay? So, so understand, I've given you some big picture. I know it's uncomfortable material, but there's a principle here that we can apply to our daily lives. This isn't just about when something big happens, but in per, on a personal level daily, we've got to find the balance between fear and fury. See, when somebody offends you, what's your natural response? Are you afraid to deal with the issue? Are you afraid to go to them? Are you afraid to work it out? Or do you automatically respond with such fury and anger that you immediately go and confront the issue? When, it, when another trial, child treats your child poorly. Now listen, you say, I can't believe you're dealing with those kinds of things. Hey, I've been around a little bit. And... And, we've, and there are parents, when their child gets treated poorly by another child, they go home and they talk about it, but they're afraid to deal with it. And so they kind of create this environment at home of, you know, we're kind of talking about this other situation that's happening and growing resentful about it. But you also then have parents that immediately, as, something, as soon as something happened, mama bear comes out. And fury is, is raging. No, when somebody takes your parking spot, when you've been waiting... Fear or fury? When that coworker talks behind your back again. Listen, most of us lean one way or the other. And, and before we think that this message doesn't apply and it's too kind of specific to really apply, no, most of us fit into one of these categories. Most of us, when it comes to dealing with wrong, we are either fearful, which means we bury our heads in the sand and we don't like confrontation. Fear. In most, most marriages, there's one, uh, one, one spouse is one and one's the other. 
And you've got one spouse who doesn't like confrontation and they bury their head in the sand. And you've got one spouse who's all the rage. Fury. And usually those things are, are come together well because God balances this out. But, but if you're fearful, you bury your head and you don't respond. If you're, if you're fury, then you overreact, often without a full understanding of the whole story. And if you lean one way, you tend to be hard on those that lean the other way. I mean, Jacob, we find out later, Jacob was very upset with his sons for their fury. But we also know that in, in, in an indictment, on an indictment level, that his son says, well, why should we let our sister be dealt with like a harlot? Basically indicting their father to say, you should have done more. And when you lean toward fear, the people that, that lean toward fury drive you crazy. But when you lean toward fury, the people that might lean toward fear drive you crazy. Listen, this, this principle applies in a lot of ways, though. Let me just give you this scenario. Let's say that someone has a habit of driving too fast down your street. Okay, the reason I use this scenario is because we have people that drive too fast down our street. Let's say that you are too afraid to tell them to stop because you don't want them to be mad at you. But your children play in the front yard. Still, you're too afraid to say something and one day there's a tragic accident in front of your house. You operated by fear to disastrous results. On the other hand, you get so furious that they're driving fast down your street that you go up to their house, knock on the door and assault them when they answer it and you go to jail because of it. You operated by fury to disastrous results. See, the fearful could have used courage to deal with a legitimate issue, but the furious could have used some measured grace before dealing with it the way they did. And the balance is essential, and it can be seen in many applications. Let me give you this one. How about when there's an offense? You think, well, I'm just unoffendable. Usually the people that claim to be unoffendable are the most offendable. Okay, let's just get that out there. You can't really offend me. Well, no, someone says something negative about you, it gets back to you. If you lean toward fear, you know what you're going to do? You're going to bottle it up and you're going to grow bitter and angry. And no one will ever know until someday somebody flips the release valve and it all comes out on everybody else. But listen, if it's worth dealing with, deal with it. But if it's not worth dealing with, you know what you need to do? You need to let it go before it destroys you. Either deal or release. Either deal or release. And I'll have people come and they'll mention things to me that happen here at church sometimes. And they'll say, this happened and, and you know, it's really, it is a problem. I say, I, I want to say, okay, then deal with it. Say, well, I don't know if it's a big enough issue to deal with it. So it's a big enough issue for the pastor to deal with it, but it's not big enough for you to deal with it. So listen, if it's a big enough issue, deal with it. But if it's not a big enough issue, let it go. And I'm not going to sing this song, but I kind of want to. Let it go. Release it. 
And we, you know, churches, but not just churches, homes and workplaces and everything else. When offenses come, you've got some that are afraid and they bottle it up and they go bitter. Then you've got some that are furious and they immediately then go deal with it. But that's just as damaging because a bull in a china shop normally is going to destroy some things along the way. And usually those that are furious don't have the whole story. It could have been a misunderstanding. It could be you just simply haven't really heard the whole thing. And it could turn into a literal offense and blow up a church or an office or a family because you were furious. We've got to find the balance between fear and fury. Let me give you another scenario. Parenting. And it seems like every family has a good cop, bad cop as one of their parents. And sometimes it's mom, and sometimes it's dad, and sometimes, you know, mom can be both, okay? But usually one or the other, you've got one that wants to be the friend and the other that wants to be the enforcer. But parenting out of fear, though, it's no way to parent. See, fear will make you, you parent in such a way that you, you don't discipline because you don't want you to have your, your child be mad at you. Listen, they're, they're a year old. They're not going to remember in five minutes what just happened. And I, I've met far too many parents who are trying to be their child's best friend. But let me just tell you this, they need a mom, not a BFF. They need a, they need a dad, not a buddy. Don't let fear be the ruling influence in your parenting. Don't be afraid to tell your kiddos no. Because sometimes you have to be perceived as the bad guy. And they need to hear no when they're toddlers or they won't hear no when they're teenagers or they won't be able to tell themselves no when they're teenagers and you that's when you have a real problem on your hands your child needs parents not best friends and God puts you in their lives to train and discipline them for life by by instilling in them the character of Jesus Christ don't be afraid of that responsibility on the other hand fury makes for bad parenting I believe more hearts of our children are lost by parents who react to everything with rage. Fury is destructive. And anger tears homes and families apart. Here's some helpful counsel for you. Not every act of disobedience that your child commits is an act of rebellion. Now I'm not saying that every act of disobedience doesn't need to be dealt with, but not every act is an act of rebellion, meaning there are times where it's an act of forgetfulness. And maybe their failure is more a reflection on training than it is on anything else. So you've got to take a step up in training. There are acts of oversight. There are acts of just being simple and not being aware. Righteous anger may have a place when a child rebels. But if you respond with every single infraction with fury, there will eventually not, they will eventually not take any correction seriously because every response is an overcorrection. Parenting is hard, is hard to balance. We often find ourselves bouncing between fear and fury and we've got to find the balance and we, there's so many areas I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get to all of these if you're an employer and you lead out of fear to to address things that need to be addressed your company will suffer for it but if you address everything with fury you'll lose the hearts of your employees I mean so where do we strike the balance well when wrong is done if fear is the extreme on one side And fury is the extreme on the other side. Here's the balance. It's found in faith. See, remember the fact God's not mentioned at all 
in Genesis 34. See, if the wrongs of this text had been dealt with God's ways, we might have a different story. See, if the Lord had been included in any of the decision-making, this might have turned out differently. See, faith would have told Jacob that purity is something worth protecting. And maybe he would have watched his daughter more closely. And faith would have helped him see that his child's soul is worth more than good business. Faith would have helped him take responsibility for his family and lead them appropriately. Faith would have helped Levi and Simeon realize vengeance is God's, let him repay. Faith would have helped Levi and Simeon realize circumcision is a sign of God's covenant and something to be respected, not leveraged so that you have an advantage over your enemies. Faith would have helped them to see that justice is born by the guilty party, not everybody he associates with. Can you see how an insertion of faith right down the middle between fear and fury could have solved this whole thing? Think back on the situations in your life that could have turned out differently if you had operated by faith instead of fear or fury. Could a conversation have been more productive? Could a legitimate issue actually have been resolved if you had operated by faith instead of fear? Or faith instead of fury? Could a hurt have been healed rather than allowed to fester and turn to bitterness? Could you still have that friend? If you had been willing to, instead of responding with your emotions of fear or your emotions of fury, could you still have a friend if you would have responded with the truth of faith? Might you still have that job? Could you still be at that church? Could you still have the relationship with that son or daughter or that parent? You see, fear and fury are common responses to wrong, but both leave God out of the process of making a wrong right. The point is not revenge. The point is to make the wrong right. And only God can do that. If only God could have been involved in the process, maybe Genesis 34, I could have been more excited about preaching today. But it's one of those passages you dread. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I come up to it, I think, okay, Lord, maybe make it different this time. And he never does. But if he would have been involved in it, it could look so different. What wrong are you dealing with wrongly? See, is there an offense that needs to be addressed or released? See, most offenses fall in the need to be released category. But if an offense needs to be addressed, fury will blow it up. You know what you need? You need faith. You need to deal with that issue God's way. You need to seek help from God because he can right that wrong. Follow the process and watch it heal. Parents, are you allowing fear to control how you deal with your children? Uh, where, where you're afraid to deal with the issues and you don't want them to not like you. And, and boy, they're out of control right now. Are you responding to every wrong that gets done with fury? And it, no matter the issue, big or small, you know what your parenting need, our, our homes need is an injection of faith. So that our emotions are not controlling uh, how we operate as a family. Which way do you lean? Fear or fury? See, fear means that you'll sometimes let things go that need to be dealt with. And maybe you need to get stirred up sometimes. 
Maybe you need to get stirred up enough to take some steps instead of just burying your head in the sand. But on the other, on the other hand, fury means you deal with things in a way that you shouldn't and maybe you need to take a step back. Say, is this the worth that confrontation? Is this something I can release? Turn over to Psalm 94. And I was asking the Lord, I mean, believe it or not, when a preacher gets ready for a message, he prays a lot about what he should say. And I've been praying a lot about how to close this. Because I think this is a principle that really could affect, and I wish I had more time to apply it, really could affect a lot of areas of our lives. Is that if we have the emotion of fear, things don't get dealt with. If we have the emotion of fury, we're going to deal with things in the wrong way. And we need, we need to deal with things by faith. So how do you do that? Well, Psalm 94 is, is a pretty awesome psalm about taking wrongs to God. And you know what you need to do? Here's how you, here's how you let things happen by faith. Well, the first seven verses tell us this. First, you need to take it to God. You need to take that wrong to God. Look at verse 1. It says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. You know, the first stop is not your friends. The first stop is not a phone call or social media. Your first stop should be to your knees when there's a wrong been done. Take it to the Lord. Verse 2, lift up thyself, Lord, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. You take care of this. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. No, when you've been wronged, take it to God first. It's okay to be sorrowful, but your griefs ought to be expressed to God. Why? Because vengeance is his. And this is good for the furious. To stop and take it to God before you go make a confrontation. Verse 8 through 11 tell us this. If you want to handle a wrong right, you need to be willing to speak the truth. Verse 8 says, understand ye brutish. So who is he talking to now? Is he still talking to God? No, he's talking to the sinners. He says in verse 8, Oh, understand ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heathen, shall not he correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall not he know? The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. You know what the psalmist does? He doesn't just take it to God and leave it there. No, he addresses those that have done the wrong. And he reminds them of truth. He says, God made your ears. He can hear what's going on. God made the eye. He can see what's happening. Don't think you're going to get away with this. Listen, he doesn't go with emotion. He doesn't go with a sword. He goes with truth. And there are times when a wrong has been done, if it's a big enough wrong, and you think you can do it in an appropriate way with the right spirit, truth needs to be spoken, but not with emotion. You need to go, you need to simply tell the truth. Don't be afraid to speak the truth in love and let them know God sees the injustice and he's concerned. And you know what? Those verses are good for the fearful. 
Verses 12 through 19 tell us this. When a wrong, how to handle wrong with faith. Well, take it to God. Be willing to speak the truth. 12 through 19 tell us this. Remember God's promises. Verse 12. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. That thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. You know what he's saying? He's saying God's not just interested in punishment. He's interested in mercy so that people can get things right. He, wants, he doesn't just want to add wrong to wrong. He wants to make it right. Verse 14. For the Lord will not cast off his people. Neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness. And all the upright in heart shall follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who, shall, who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. When it's hard and wrong has been done, you need to be reminded, God has not left you alone. He's concerned about you. He wants to show you mercy. And he's not going to just leave you in the pit where you are. He'll raise you back up if you just simply, by faith, continue to obey. Remember God's promises. That's good for the fearful and the furious. Look how he ends it. These verses tell us this. Let God be God. Let God be God. Shall the throne, verse 20, of iniquity have fellowship with thee? which frameth mischief by a law. They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood, but the Lord is my defense. And my God is the rock of my refuge. He shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. You know how you let allow wrong to be handled by faith is you let God be God. God can protect you and punish them better than you could ever figure out how. Let him. And if you spend your life trying to right the wrongs against you, the best you'll ever do is add wrong to wrong. But the best God can do is make the wrongs right. How? Well, how do you let this happen? You, well, add faith to the wrong. Deal with the wrong biblically and watch God make things right. See, the line between fear and fury rests on this. Faith that God will do what he says. He sees it. He cares. He knows when wrong's been done, so let him be God. The best you'll ever do is add wrong to wrong. But the best God can do is make the wrong right. So why would I keep trying, either by fear or fury, to leave him out of the process? Which way do you lean? Are you over here where you're afraid or over here where you're furious? Both leave God out of the process. Don't do it. Just reminded of these verses again. Take it to God. Be willing to speak the truth. Remember his promises and let him be God. When wrong is done, that's how to make right out of wrong, faith. And I hope that you'd be willing to do it this morning. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
There's a lot of people in this room have, you've been dealt a lot of wrongs. And some of the wrongs are pretty big, like Dinah, pretty big wrongs. And maybe by fear you, you, you swept it under the rug. Listen, there's healing and forgiveness. If Jesus Christ forgave us, he can give you the same divine supernatural power to heal those that have wronged you. So let God be God and by faith respond to that. There's some who've been wronged in, in such a way and it was big, but you responded with fury and it cost you something. Listen, God can forgive. He can heal. He can help you overcome that. But you're going to have to decide to inject some faith into the process and let God be God. And wherever you lean and whatever your past and however you've dealt with wrongs in the past, I'm telling you this morning, if you will simply choose to add faith out of Psalm 94 to that wrong, he can make the wrong right. Don't add wrong to wrong by doing it your way. Add God to the wrong by doing it by faith. Father, thank you for the truth. And I know it's very specific. And maybe it's more preventative in the lives of somebody here. <clears throat> but I have to think that maybe there's somebody here uh, who has been dealing with wrongs wrong. And it's costing them or they're letting it fester. God, would you help us to learn forgiveness and, and learn how to insert faith into these areas of life that we try to do on our own strength. God, I pray that you'd use this message as a reminder this morning that you are God and you're in control and we ought to always include you in our processes. Thank you for the reminder. I also think this morning of those who may be here that aren't saved, <clears throat> maybe they think that salvation is not attainable by them and yet forgiveness is always available. And even though you have righteous anger towards sin, you also sent your son to right that wrong. That's how concerned you are with righting wrongs is that you sent your son to die for our sins and I'm so thankful for that truth. I pray that you'd help us to, to Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who needs to place their faith in Jesus so that they can spend eternity in heaven with you, Lord, I pray that they would do that this morning. But Lord, otherwise for the rest of us, help us learn how to handle the wrongs wrong, uh, right and not, not to allow our own emotions of fear and fury to disrupt the process that you are able to accomplish. Have your will and way during the invitation in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.